want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. First and foremost, I was just telling Matthew I had I had some surgery last week, and or was that? No, it was two weeks ago because it was on a Wednesday. So I'm well, two weeks out tomorrow, and um, last week I went nuts because I literally couldn't have done the show if I wanted to because I was barely talking, let alone announcing words, and it was bad. And um, so thanks all for the all well wishes. Doing a lot better. We'll see if my voice actually holds up for the show, but I'm sure Matthew will cover for me if I, I start to slow down here. My guest tonight is Matthew. Oh, D. You just said this, and I just psyched myself totally out on it. D.B. Oz. D.B. Oz. Jeez, a page. I just totally, I, I even wrote it down kind of phonetically, and then, yeah. And you're the author of Lord of the Gridiron College Football Greatest Greatest Coaches. How, how many are in the book? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to spill the beans, but how many coaches are in the book? Uh, well, I featured the top 50, and I ranked the, I, I isolated the top 50 after a pool of 416 coaches who coached in Division 1A college football, strictly 1A. Okay, so that'd be like the big, that's the big schools, right, for the people who aren't well versed in college yeah. athletics. That's right. I'm not talking about Division 2 or Division 3 or Division 1AA. You know, not you won't you won't see coaches like Jake Gathers or uh, you know Eddie Eddie Robinson. You know, uh, just strictly the Division One A coaches. You know, the you know the SEC, the Big Ten. You know, the the Power Five conferences and those other con- those other conferences that comprise Division One A college football. So that, I mean, that, Division One A goes back to I want to say around the turn of the last century, the ni- the nineteenth century. Am I correct in that? Actually, the concept of divisions, I think, was like, I think Division Two and Division Three were constituted in 72, 73, thereabouts. Oh. But, yeah, I mean, they didn't really have Division Two and Division Three in in the early years. Uh, if, but we're talking about, we're strictly talking about what we know, what now know today as Division One a And what I did was I rated and I devised a rating system a plus-minus rating system where, based on winning your seasonal winning percentage, where like if you or if you like go like seven and six, you would only get one point. Uh, whereas if you had a perfect season, you would get fourteen points. And there would also be uh, little bonuses, like if you made a minor bowl game appearance, you would get nine points. If you made a major bowl game appearance, you would get eleven points. If you won a major bowl game, you would get twelve points. Uh, if you won the national championship, you would win 15 points. So on a scale of, uh, it was a, a plus scale of 1 to 15. Conversely, uh, the minus system, if you went like 6 and 7 in a season, you would lose 1 point off your va- season, uh, your career value. Or if you went, uh, if you lost a minor bowl game, you would lose 10 points. If you lost a major bowl game, you would lose 12 points. Like Bo Schembechler, he lost 10 major bowl games. That's a lot of points he lost off his value there. So that's why he ranks in the in the uh, somewhere in the mid 40s, you know, according to my rating system, because of all those major bowl game losses. So it's it's important, you know. So you know, it's important that you you know make uh, if you're like Urban Meyer, you're always your teams are always at a high octane, consistent high octane level, and they're winning their bowl games, either major or minor bowl games. You know, you can do very good for yourself. That's why Urban Meyer ranks among the top five in my book. I had the great honor and privilege of interviewing him. He was actually my last interview. Uh, almost, it was like last January. Uh, I, I think it was like three weeks after he had coached his last game, you know, the 2019 Rose Bowl. We got to talk. You know, he was retired. He was free and clear. And he gave me a very wonderful interview about his career and his accomplishments and also some uh, great insights about his coaching contemporaries like Nick Saban, Gary Patterson, Chris Peterson, uh, Davo Sweeney. Uh, a great interview there. So I, I guess since you we're at Urban Meyer, not, like I told, I told you this isn't a sports show, but this is kind of something that I follow and have a passion for. Do you believe he's done? No, 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 no. Uh, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't pick up another coaching gig this year. But when I talked to him, we kind of asked, "Are you absolutely done?" He refused to absolutely close the door. However, his health issues, his arachnoid cyst, and other issues. Have you know it, it ended his career at Florida and it ended his career here in Ohio State, among other things. But it was there; they are real issues. So apparently, you know, he obviously he desperately needed the rest, and 
And uh, I'm not closing. The, I would refuse to close the door. Uh, Urban Meyer is roughly my age. He may be a few months younger than I am, you know, and I'm 56 years old. And as I state in my book, he is simply much too great a coach to hang it all up. He still has a lot to contribute to the game. If he can just regain his, regain his health, you know, get rid of his pains, you know, his arachnoid cyst pains and be able to, you know, relax again. You know, I, he's still the greatest unhired coach in the game today. And I'm, 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 you know, I figure sooner or later, if the right situation happens, he'll get another gig again. I'm, I'm pretty positive of it. I mean, I think it would have to take something, either a health issue that we don't we just don't know about, he's not telling us, or else maybe he's holding out for a pro job. I don't know. I mean, there was rumors a, few, a month ago about him taking the USC job, and I thought that would have been perfect for him because, hey, USC desperately needs someone of his caliber to revive that program because they've never been the same since Pete Carroll left. Um, but apparently it didn't happen. And who so who knows what you know what's he doing? I mean, right now he's working for ESPN, but we just have to see what you know what comes in over the transom. Certainly not this year, but probably maybe this time next year something might happen. Well, we just have to see, Jim. Well, that, that's the fun part of this, right? There's always that one name out there. Yeah, I mean, he's still the greatest name according to my rating system. And right now, with the retirement, Chris Peterson, even Peterson. Uh, he probably will take a brief sabbatical, but again, he's he's much too great a coach to be, you know, hanging fire. I mean, sooner or later, I think he's going to find another gig. Uh, you know, it's just it's going to take some time, but I I, I can understand. I mean, it, it, his years at Washington were not really the same as what he was doing at Boise State, and this past season it was very much hit and miss. Uh, I mean, he managed to pull out that bowl game victory, but it was a very subpar season. I think he's probably exhausted all of his possibilities at Washington. I think he just needs to pull back, reassess, and then wait for the next uh, opportunity that comes in. I, it'll be interesting to see which one it'll be. I mean, he's a native Californian. I'm a West Coast guy. I wonder, will it be another Pac-12 job or maybe uh, go someplace else? It'll be very interesting to see what happens. I, I'm fascinated by this name to no end. He's, pro he's not in your top 50 coaches. Not yet. Probably could end up there. Who's that? Lane Kiffin. Who's this? Lane Kiffin. Yeah, um, he. I. I forget if I have him. I don't. I forget if I have him on my list. If he's on the thing or not. Uh, I have. To, I, I have. To, I, I should have known. I. I just. I. I don't see him right here right now. I don't believe. Uh, I don't think he has enough. Col I don't think he has enough college win because he was in the NFL for a while. Right. Uh, that's another thing. To be eligible for my book, you had to have a minimum of ten seasons at Division One A level to be eligible. If he has not done 10, I don't think he's done 10. That's the reason why he's not in my book. Okay? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think he's done 10 at the, at the Division One level, at least. And that explains why he's not in the book. He has not yet done his 10 uh, and all that. Uh, there, were, uh, there are only two coaches who I didn't uh, meet the 10-year thing. That's Pete Carroll and Walter Camp, uh, the man who virtually invented American college football. And Pete Carroll... The, the exceptions I made were, I explained in the book, they had a career-winning percentage of over 750, and they won two national championships in, in less than those 10 years. So that's the reason why I made those exceptions, because both men, you know, they won two national championships, and they were just absolutely exceptional records. They're the only exceptions to my 10-year rule. So I've got, I've got a two-part question, because the, the second part's way too loaded. How about games that well, the NCAA came back through and said, you didn't technically win them through oh, sanctions. Oh, you mean because or, they violated the rules and all that? No, no, yeah. no. I never, I never, I, I refuse to take that into account. Uh, what you did originally is what I went by. In other words, if you, like Pete Carroll, you know, he had his uh, wins and validated because of the Reggie Bush scandal and all that. I totally ignored that. I went with what actually happened originally at that given moment of time. So there is no taking into consideration like the Joe Paterno scandal, you know, where things, uh, certain things he did were invalidated and all that. No, I refuse to take that into consideration. I always went by what happened originally at that given moment in time. That was the, that was the loaded part of the question. Cause I know you're from the other side of the state. I'm from, I'm from the Pittsburgh side of Pennsylvania. So what we meet in the middle it's at state college here and what a, what a it, tragic end. Yeah, 
I know. Uh, now, people are kind of surprised that I had Joe Paterno rank, not even ranked among the top five. And I'll explain this way. The problem with Joe Pa is that his, if you looked at his record uh, during the 21st century in the 2000s up to the end, his performance in the 21st century was not exactly good, and that really cost him in, his, in one of my four rating categories, the average season rating, which measures the quality of a coach's performance. Uh, he had some very poor and some mediocre seasons, and that really brought him down, and that's why his ASR rating is not as high as his, like his career value or his B5 value, which was his best five seasons overall. Uh, that kind of harmed him. That He lost several steps in rank. Now, in the other category, the BQ uh, value, which it's a Latin term for quinquennium, which stands for five, five years. Uh, it measures your best five straight years, five consecutive years. It measures a coach's ability to maintain consistent high-octane performance. Paterno's five consecutive years, I had to use the period from 68 to 72, and people would wonder, how come I didn't use the 82 to 86 period because he won two national championships in that time period and it's because after the 82 national championship he had a I think he had like a losing he had a losing season a really bad subpar year and then he lost out in 85 to Barry Switzer and that actually cost him so that was not exactly his best five straight years according to my rating system I had to use the 68 to 72 period and the problem is even though he had two consecutive perfect seasons in 68 69 he didn't win a national championship, and the obvious reason was that the strength of schedule. It didn't measure up to Ohio State's schedule in 68 when they won the national championship or Texas's uh, schedule in 69 when they won the national championship because they played much stronger uh, opposition. So that's another reason why Joe Paterno failed to uh, rank among the top five according to my rating system there. But I was able to interview t uh, two players, uh, one of which I, whose material I used, like Bob Check. He was a center for uh, Penn State in the early 90s, and um, he's there now he's a school principal. And he gave me incredible insights, which you see in the book there, about what it was, you know, it wasn't just, you know, uh, ma ba making great football players. He made, he made, he, he, he developed human beings, you know, in other words, what were you going to do after the cheering stopped and you took out, hung up the football uniform for the last time? What are you going to do with your life? And he wanted, you, he wanted his players to make something substantial of themselves. Be substantial, okay? Don't be a walking monument to the game, but be a contributor to community. And that's why Bob Check now has long been a, you know, a school administrator, a school principal, someplace in central PA. And he's done that for quite a long time. And he really got into you know, his intellect, Paterno's intellectual side. This was a man who understood history. He was schooled in the classics. He could recite the Roman poet Virgil. He loved the Aeneid. Uh, the Aeneid. Um, he could, you know, he could discuss political history, military history. I mean, he was so learned and educated. I mean, Bob Check said he wasn't one for giving Rockney-type speeches, but like the night before the games, he would have a talk with the team. And he said the, the scholarly nature, the erudition. I mean, he said that it was like the president walking in the room. He had such command presence because of his intellectual powers. And, you know, and he created this, he created this magnificent legacy. And then the Sandusky scandal happened. And, if, and all of a sudden now, all that, that monument, all those beautiful living monuments he created because of, you know, what he did at, at you know, Penn State, are all washed away because of the blackness of the scandal. I mean, the horrific nature of it all. It's just, it's just, it's some, it's it's eerie, you know, the, the the utmost high and then come totally besmirched, tarnished, you know, forever. I mean, just and and such a way too, you know, just and it just it's mind-boggling to contemplate and the possibility that if he had not died when he did, he probably like the others, you know, Spaniard and the others probably would have gone to jail. Because of that scandal, that's that's the mind-boggling aspect of it, Jim. Yeah, it, it truly is. And then was it two years ago? Yeah, or was it last summer? Anyways, at one point we were driving across the state, and I we were looking for lunch. I said, "Oh, we'll, we'll stop and take college, and you know, have some lunch, go some, do some shopping, get out of the car, stretch your legs a little bit." So I drove yeah. up by the stadium, by where the statue was. Now I've been there. I've actually somewhere. 
on one of these external hard drives I have floating around, there's a picture of me in Joe Paterno's statue. Yeah. So I went up there and to go up there and it's not there and it's weird. I know? know, I know. I mean, it is, I mean, decades of magnificent accomplishment. I remember when he spoke at the Republican convention, I think was it 88 or is it 88 or 92? I remember that because, you know, he was a lifelong Republican and he gave a speech, you know, uh, uh, endorsing uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, H.W. Bush and all of that. I mean, he was courted by presidents. Joe DiMaggio respected and admired him enormously. You know, I mean, just, and, and then all this was happening. I remember I talked about the, I, I would talk to some coaches, I won't name names. I mean, asking him, not on the record, but off the record, you know, about what the thoughts about it. And it just, they're all, they were all shocked and stunned. It's like, couldn't, they just couldn't believe it. It's like, I mean, Joe, you know, it's like, it was just, it was, it was, a, it was like a, a nationwide gobsmack in, in the college football world to do for something like that to happen. It was just a gobsmack. And the other thing that the factors that interest me is the length of time there, because we were talking about Urban a few minutes ago. I mean, he's bounced around from Utah to Florida to Ohio State. I mean, Joe was there. I mean, for yeah. years. Oh, generations, yeah, generations, yeah. Yeah, so. in fact, even before he became head coach, he got there. Was it uh, fifty, you know, fifty or fifty-one? He was like he did like a six, a sixteen-year apprenticeship as an assistant coach. So, I mean, my good, I mean, just, I mean, literally for uh, six decades, you know, at one place. I mean, he literally put state college on the college football map because before he came. I mean, Penn State University was just, it was just little, something in the backwoods, man. No one paid it any mind. And he made it a power. He got them into the Big Ten. I mean, it was amazing. He, the first thing, I think it was a mistake he got them in the Big Ten. I think, I wish he had gone into ACC because if he had done that, he might have had gotten some more shots at national championships because when he went into the Big Ten in the early years of the college football thing, the Bowl Coalition, Bowl Alliance, and the BCS, Big Ten was not really part of that, and that's why they missed out on some opportunities. Like 1994, they should have played Nebraska for the national championship due to their perfect record, but they were contractually locked into the Rose Bowl, and that's why you know Nebraska played. Was it? I think it was a Florida State. You know, Miami or Florida? I think it was Miami. You know, for the for the national championship there, and it cost them. Yeah, you know, and. I always thought that was a little bit of a mistake. He probably should have gone ACC like Bobby Bowden did with Florida State. He probably would have had more chances, you know, to get a shot at the national championship, in my view. So I've got, I mean, you mentioned your your, your uh, formulas. Is there Was there any room in there for the eyeball test or the, um, just the, I mean, you mentioned Newt Rockney. There's certain names that just carry some more weight. No, uh, what, 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 and all, not just this book here, but my previous books, what I always strive to do is avoid subjectivity. What I always try to do is create a system based on hard, verifiable numbers. So I'm, where I'm trying to eliminate potential sectional biases, geographical biases, uh, anything that uh, has a tinge of subjectivity to it. I'm trying to get on something that's hard and verifiable based on winning percentage, which, you know, you, you can't argue with that the record is there. Uh, like, I, I, for a moment, I, mean, I talk about this in the book, for, a, for in the early years when I was working on this, I contemplated, like, awarding points, like, if you finished among the top five, you would get X amount of points. If you were in the top ten, you would get Y amount of points. But then in the end, I decided to do it, but I didn't do it, because when you look at the polling, there are, there are some years where there are disputes. I mean, is it really an accurate poll? And I thought, you know, if I went by poll finishes, then that's kind of introducing, like, subjectivity there. Another thing about Penn State is, this is something that always drove me crazy when I was rooting for them. Penn State would start a, a certain year during their glory years very high up, if not number one, like number two. But the moment they would lose a game, the pollsters would always drop from from like one or two all the way down to 25, whereas if it was like Alabama and they lost their first game and they were high up, they would go from like one or two to only like 10 or nine, which means they would at least still, you know, early in the season, they would still have a shot at regaining a, a chance to win the national championship, whereas Penn State, the moment they lost the game, boom, you're off the scale. And 
Yeah, and by the time they would finish, they would be like ten or nine, and you know, no, and on the outside knocking in. I always, I always felt there was a little bit of a prejudice there, and that's, you know, I always that's the feeling. Did you ever get that feeling, Jim? You know, actually, did you I ever did. Get that impression? Yeah, I always thought there was that. Hey, I, I always noticed that year after year that would happen. You know, and, and even with when the the Sandusky scandal exploded. And the draconian punishments that the NCAA inflicted on Penn State University. I had this weird feeling if this had happened like at Alabama or um, uh, 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 like Florida State or Florida would, or Texas or Oklahoma, would the punishments have been that severe and that draconian? I mean, that's the rhetorical question I put out to you, Jim, and to your listeners. I mean, what do you think, Jim? I mean, do you do you feel the same way, or or no? That's a bit of a stretch. How do you feel, Jim? I, well, I, I, it's a good question. I, I think, well, being biased, it seemed to me because, it, you know, the, the time there. I mean, if it would have been a coach that had been at the school for ten years and had had all the extra history, the the library named after him, and all this other stuff, I don't know if it would have seemed as crushing to that university as it did to Penn State in particular. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just sometimes. But I sometimes I wonder because there was like a, I know after the Sandusky scandal exploded, there was a lot of rush among certain people, you know, to take to try to take the uh, add more tarnish to Joe to Joe Paterno's halo. You know, I, I there was I mean there was a certain aspect to it. I mean, among certain observers there. So you, you've mentioned doing a couple. How many interviews did you end up doing for the book? Um. Let's see. I interviewed. Let's see. Um, I interviewed Tom Osborne, Urban Meyer, Mac Brown, who's uh, going to be in a few days competing in a bowl game, trying to uh, salvage a winning season at University of North Carolina. I talked to him like several months before he took the UNC job. I talked to Bob Stoops, um, uh, Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz was fantastic with me. I talked to Jim Tressel. Uh, I talked to Steve Spurrier. Talked to him. Uh, boy, who, who else? I got Jim, Jim Trussell, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, and not just coaches. I, I also talked to, you know, uh, former players, uh, some Heisman Trophy winners like, uh, Johnny Rogers, who, uh, Nebraska, Pete Daw- General Pete Dawkins, who won the 1958 Heisman Trophy. Talked to him. Uh, talked to some guys, three guys who played for Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech in the 1950s. Uh, Talk to three Oklahoma Sooners who played for Bud Wilkinson in the, uh, at Oklahoma in the uh, 1950s. Even talked to, to uh, an old Notre Dame player who played for Frank Leahy in 1948, who later went into the CIA. You know, he, he was a great guy. Yeah, yeah seriously. Talked about you know, hey, from 46 to 49, Notre Dame was unbeaten. They won three national championships in a four-year time span. I mean, that was one of the most glorious performances in Notre Dame history. Uh, uh, Frank Leahy. And it was featured in my book there. Uh, so, yeah, I had like over 34 hours of interviews. I talked to Jim McMahon, you know, oh, the Chicago Bears fame. We talked about Lavelle Edwards at uh, Brigham Young. In fact, they're playing tonight, you know, the Hawaii Bowl, you know. Uh, that's part of the, the reason Hawaii I wanted Bowl. to get you on. I, that's part of the reason I wanted to get you on right now, because when I go to turn this, it'll be right around New Year's Day. And what more popular yeah. thing than there is to um, yeah. call yeah. football. So. Yeah. So, um, I've uh, okay. Two, two easy questions for you, and then we'll we'll turn yeah. gears here a little bit. One person that you'd like to talk to that you didn't get the opportunity to talk to. I I couldn't talk to. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could have talked to Saban, but uh, you know, Saban. I tried to reach out to him several year, two, three years ago, but very. I mean, it's not just me. I mean, he's very. Uh, controlled about who whom he talks to you know he's not that accessible and even then and not particularly revealing and all of that um uh who i could have talked to i would love to have talked to barry switzer what a, i tried i i mean i was able to contact his wife but it uh, he was on the road and he, or he couldn't really get it together but oh what a character he was i mean I mean, why they never made a movie on his life? I mean, they taken his book, book, bootleggers, boy, and convert that into a movie is beyond me because his is the stuff of a Hollywood movie. Just what a character! I mean, a magnificent coach, but man, that situation in Oklahoma. I mean, I talk about in the book. 
if you take a look at all the, the, the basically the lurking scandals, the sex, the lies, the videotape, the rock and roll, the characters there, Bosworth and all that, it would have made for a great long-running cable TV miniseries. Seriously, then, I mean, you, it was wild. And then you backed up. Then you backed it up with the Cowboys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, Jimmy Johnson, <laughs> and Pete Carroll—the only men ever to win a college football national championship and the Super Bowl—a very small club. <laughs> if my voice was feeling better, I would have gave you the Jimmy Johnson. How about those Cowboys? But I don't think I have it tonight. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, probably blew, yeah. blew out your ear too. Oh, okay. Most serious question though: Where can people find the book and find you before we get off into a tangent about something else? You must buy it online at Amazon. It's not available in stores. I uh, I uh, self-published this um, uh, through K- uh, Kindle Di- Digital Publishing, which is Amazon's uh, uh, digital subsidiary there. I self-published it. I probably could have gotten a conventional publishing deal for this, but unfortunately the, the conventional publishing companies really wanted me to cut the manuscript severely because uh, it's a 350-page manuscript. They wanted to chop it down to 280 and there was no way I could have done that without raping and gutting the central intellectual thrust of the man of the of the book. There, I would have had to leave all almost most of that beautiful interview material that I got, which really is to me the real meat and uh, heart and soul of that book. The players and the coaches discussing how it went down. You know, what was the secret to these coaches' greatness? I would have reduced my book to a Dick and Jane reader, and this is not a Dick and Jane reader, and I owed it to those men who cooperated with me that their 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 memories and their insights are kept in this book here. So that's the, re- that's the reason why I self-publish it. So to buy it, you must go on Amazon, just look up my name, Matthew DiBiaz, or type in the title Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, and there you will have it. And right now it's on sale due to Christmas season. It will remain on sale at 30% off until after the national championship game is played. Then it will go back to full price. So you want to get a bargain? Buy it right now, sports fans. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so I told you we're going to shift gears a little bit now. I was reading your Amazon bio, and I stumbled, there's some great nuggets in there. But you yeah. know, the, you know, as, you, as I'm sitting here ranking priorities, as I look towards the other, like I told you, there's a lot of good stuff that you do, and I want to get to. I've seen that you were on Jeopardy. Yes, yes, yes. Some more, some more, uh, hash, more, more powerful words that I need. I need Alex to back right now. <laughs> yeah, um, well, yeah, guess what? Um, it was uh, 27 years, uh, no, 28 years ago. It was the first week of December, 1991. I flew out to California. First time in my life I ever flew out to California. And, uh, yeah, I taped an episode. It was, they do five, they film five episodes uh, two days they devote to filming episodes. They do five episodes a day for two days. And I was the fourth of that day, and I competed, and uh, I lost by a buck. I, I ended up with $14,400, and the other guy beat me by a dollar. Uh, he was lucky. He wasn't smarter than me. And the air date of my show was uh, March 12, 1992. And I got to, you know, and I, I he actually talked to me the most, Um of the three contestants, he actually talked to me the most. What I remember at the time was, this was 27 years ago, his hair was salt and peppery, and um, he, was a li- he was a little bit shorter than I am. What I remember was his chin. It was like someone had taken a chisel and chiseled it in a perfectly straight line. I mean, I remember how perfectly defined his chin was, you know, and all that. But he was, he was quite nice. He was about as friendly as a celeb could be. And um, he talked to me the most, and... And I remember, I told him, I remember watching you as a kid when you were uh, the MC of High Rollers, and he said, please don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so but I yeah, that was, my, that was my first 22 minutes of fame. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a pity. I mean, it would have, I wish I had that $14,000 right now. <laughs> so I guess the question... Yeah, I, I did the, it, yeah. The question becomes, were you, were you planning on going there to try to be on Jeopardy, or were you just one of those blind last minute kind of deals. Oh, I had been devotedly watching Jeopardy from like since 1981. And I kept thinking, you know, I'm good enough to do this. So 
they always have contestant uh, things, like they at Merv Griffin's Resort Casino, and so so sometime in 1991 they had a thing there. They always do. They would always put it on your local TV channel if you want to become a contestant. Uh, Merv Griffin's Resort Casino in Atlantic City is having a, a thing. You take the test and all that. So uh, I took the first test, passed it, and then you, you have to take a second, more complicated test. And I passed that, and then came the audition. The audition was right after the second test. And I passed that audition, and that was like the summer of 91. And, okay, you passed the test, and they said, okay, be alert. Sometime between, was it like August and whatever, you're going to get a call from us, and you have to, you know, you have to fly out uh, to California at, on this day to, you know, to do your thing. So just be alert. It could come at any time. And then sometime was like, it was like, early, late October, early November, I got the call, you know, hey, uh, we want you to fly out, and I did it, and I flew out to California that first week of December, sadly, I lost my game, and, uh, you know, and I just, you know, hung around, uh, and, and met some friends and relatives there, and then I flew home, uh, I always had a shot at a second game show, uh, was it, was it 17 years ago, there was this thing on the History Channel called History Now, they filmed that in New York City, I think me and my father were the only people who ever watched it because it only lasted that one season. <laughs> and I was killer. I was killer on that show. And I actually did it. And, and the thing was, I, they, they, were, they wanted to have me on, but the thing is the dates they gave me, I had, a, I had to be on the road someplace. I couldn't make it. So I told them, okay, I'll wait for your next season. We'll try again. There was never another season. Oh, 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 oh. I, I wish I'd been on. I would have killed him. I would have. I would have annihilated all competition that day. I could. I was a killer on that show. I was. I was awesome playing along with it. Seriously. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. 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 What's the name? I, I, it's probably right here in the top of my mind. I can't forget. But there's a, de a documentary on. I want to say Netflix about the guy who uh, got the prices right and got like the prices right on the prices right. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know about I don't know about that. No, but it's remarkable because he like he, no he created he created a computer program so he could like memorize these things. <laughs> he, I mean, he was like into it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I'm not like that, man. I'm not like one of those uh, uh, card counters who could do, uh, multiply 100 billion by two, two million, uh, 2.5666 million or something. No, I can't do it like that, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not like that. I, I was gonna say if you could count cards at 14,000, wouldn't seem nearly significant as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, I mean, like Rain Man. That you know, you could do, you could do that card counting like that. He had that idiot savant thing. No, I, I'm not like that. Not like that. No, no. no. Um, yeah. You've you've been writing for a while though, like you've yeah um yeah uh books. My first book came out in 2015, but actually I've been writing since the age of 17. Um, I I started off writing song lyrics, poetry and song lyrics, and uh, not really prose, mostly just song lyrics and poetry, and I kept doing that through college, and then when I went into grad school. I became an op-ed columnist for my student newspaper. I was doing like a, my uh, college kid's imitation of like uh, David Broder or Walter Lippmann or you know, someone like that, you know, um, George Will or something like that, a poor man's bit of George, you know, stuff like that from a liberal standpoint, you know, not to be political or anything like that, but that's what it was. And I did that. I was enjoying myself immensely. I wasn't just talking politics. I'd write about anything. And I was doing that on a weekly basis when I was in semester, you know, uh, fall and spring semesters from like 87, 89. And actually, I discovered I was pretty good at writing prose. And I was getting like people saying, hey, that was a great article. I was getting real good feedback and stuff like that. And from time to time, I would contribute think pieces to like a local area newspapers like the Camden Courier Post and the Berlin County Times. I even tried it with the Philadelphia Inquirer, but they never printed my stuff. And then uh, I kind of put that aside for a time and I went back to like song, uh, writing song lyrics and all that and poetry. And then uh, in the mid-2000s, I started this book project, which never really got off the ground. I wanted to do an oral history of the NHL's original six era, 
which there only had six teams from 1942 to 1967. And I was uh, going around North America, you know, U.S. and the Canada, talking to old uh, hockey players, including some living legends like Henri Richard and Red Kelly and, um, you know, Glenn Hall, guys like that, uh, talking to them about their careers, Emil Francis. And, but uh, the book, I, at the end, I had to shelve it. I just thought, I can't really make this a reality. And then I started contributing stuff for, like, Inside Hockey, which is an online hockey magazine. I used to write more often, but now I don't write as much. Uh, and I, I did this series about the 50 greatest NHL coaches. I developed this crude little system. And it just built up, and someone, again, I was getting very positive feedback, and someone said, Matt, you ought to make a book out of this. So I started working on it, and it took me like two years, and I was still refining my method. And then finally in 2013, I actually got a conventional publishing contract, Penguin Random House Canada, and my first book, Bench Bosses, came out, which, you know, the NHL's coaching league, which reveals the 50 greatest NHL head coaches of all time, uh, as determined by a system I created. And then I tried to do something for basketball, but I couldn't get a, a publishing contract. So I shelved that, and I went instead. I broke new ground with my second book, which is The Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers, which was another groundbreaking work. It's the first time in the history of sports literature dealing with the four top North American sports, uh, baseball, football, hockey, and basketball. Someone wrote a book identifying the greatest general managers of a sport using a metrical system. It's never been done before. It's literally the first and only of its kind. And that came out in 2017. And right as soon as I got that done, I went right into my present book, the college football book, and I worked that nonstop, round the clock, for two whole year, two and a half years. And the end result is Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches. And right now I'm working on my fourth book, which it will be called Lords of the Gridiron Part 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. And I've been working on that since September, and the release date for that will be um, September 1st, 2022. And I've been interviewing uh, pro football players, you know, coaches and pro football players like Marv Levy, Dan Reeves. Uh, uh, let's see, I was talking to, like, um, uh, Gary Quazzo, an old Minnesota Vikings uh, quarterback. He played for the Colts. And, you know, Bud Grant at Minnesota and Don Shula have been talking to them about their memories. I've talked to, like, Leroy Jordan about Tom Landry, you know, um, you know Jim McMahon about Mike Ditka, you know, guys like that. And I'm, I'm, try I'm putting that together. And, I, again, I devised a rating system. It's a, a six-tiered rating system where I will identify the 50 greatest NFL head coaches of all time. And you'll, uh, three years from now, Jim, we'll be talking about this book, Okay. Yes, sir. As long as long as I'm still here and you're still here, we'll do it. I'm game. I, I'm game. That's a bad yep. pun. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So back, really. to, back to the NHL book for a minute. I have an idea. Yep. I, I mean, total shot in the dark here. But I'm betting Scotty Bowman's in the top five. Oh, he's numero uno. I mean, <laughs> actually, his his record. He just he bla he just annihilated all the competition. I knew he was going to be number one. The question was who was going to occupy slots uh, two to fifty. That was the real question, you know, in the book. And um, I mean, just Bowman just totally annihilated all competition. I mean, I talked to I mean other coaches. I talked to Ken Hitchcock. I talked to uh, like you know Emil Francis and uh, you know, and just guys like that. And it was just an amazing experience, you know, and it just it kind of opened up worlds for me, you know, knowing that I could get this done and that, you know, it's up, it's up there on Amazon. All three of my books are up on Amazon. Uh, the, only the first book you could buy at a bookstore, though I, I, right now it's like a rock bottom remainder and all that. But yeah, any, all, of my, all three of my books are available on Amazon if you want to buy them. And, and people are buying my general manager's book. I mean, even though it's one of the most arcane and obscure topics you can imagine, people are still buying it, which is quite, you know, quite a thrill for me. It's kind of like an affirmation of my research. But, I mean, imagine if someone had done a book about the 50 greatest baseball general managers. I mean, someone, imagine comparing, like, who was really greater? Was Branch Rickery greater than, um, you know, uh, George Weiss of the Yankees? I mean, who, you know, who was the, who is the greatest general manager in baseball history? Wouldn't it be fascinating if someone actually made the attempt and found out, you know, 
who knows? You know, if using a system, a metrical system, uh, it would be uh, interesting to find out. You know, coming twenty twenty three, and then it's followed by the the penultimate book here. The the ultimate book, I guess, would be you get the four major sports you know coaches number number one versus number one versus number one. Who is the coach? Yeah. I mean, you just, um, you, know, we're, you know, we're trying to work that out, you know, and that's what I'm trying to work out with my pro football book. And I think it's going to surprise some people when it comes out. It kind of surprised me where certain coaches rate and rank and all of that. I think it will surprise. It, it's going to be uh, like, like certain coaches you think are going to be like top 10 or top 5 material. And actually, no, they're not. And I've got a lot of explaining to do. And I'm doing the explaining right here and now as I'm writing this book, you know. I'm up to chapter 14 right now, and next Sunday we'll be, I'll work on chapter 15 and all that. You know, I do like, you know, chapter a week and all that. And it's gonna be, it's gonna be very surprising. You know, certain th- coaches you think are high echelon, and no, not, not what you think. And I, and there will be explanations for that when my book comes out three years from now. Believe me. Yeah, you'll probably be just as surprised as the other readers, and you and I are probably going to be, you're going to be asking me, okay, why? You know, why, why is such and such not in the top 10? And I'm going to have to explain that to you, Jim, okay? <laughs> well, yeah. I, well, I mean, but when you follow the, the statistics, like, you know, if you sat there and picked, I don't want to say pick names out of a hat. That's, that's a little bit ridiculous. But if you would have went more subjectively, right? Based off your opinion, I guess, more so than pulling them out of a hat. Uh, that's when the discussion can happen, right? But if you're, if you're hard-line numbers, I mean, it's hard to argue numbers. Numbers never Right, lie. right. And that's the thing. You've got to you, – that's what I'm always trying to do, Jim. I'm trying to remove potential biases. You know, like I'm, a, I'm an Eagles fan. You know, of course, we're supposed to hate the Dallas Cowboys, but you can't think of those terms. You can't have anti-Dallas bias. You have to go by the hard, verifiable numbers. What did these coaches actually do? And you just can't – pick out, okay, I'm just going to ignore the, I'm going to just choose the great years, I'm going to ignore the poor years. No, you must see their career in its totality. You have to take the rough with the smooth. You have to figure out that, yeah, you know, like Tom Landry in his first seven years of coaching was actually had a very lousy record. Very. Uh-oh. Was seven and seven? No playoff appearances? I mean... He had a he came he went into a hole very quickly and he got he had to took him some time to get out of it. Look at Bill Belichick, his years at Cleveland, <laughs> not world beating man, not the greatest in the world. You know, even his first season with New England was not the greatest in the world. But then finally he hit the magic formula. And now he's way up there, man. You know, he's he's way up there, Jim, and he's not finished yet. You know. Okay, so I, so Jim Jimmy Johnson's the best Cowboys coach, right? Not to give anything uh, away, it, but because no, Landry was there longer, like you were saying, doesn't have all the. Because Jimmy was there for uh, no, a short burst. I mean, according to my race, and no, Jimmy John's not the greatest Cowboys coach. I mean, it's still Tom. You know, it's still Tom Landry. You know, I'm not going to tell you well, where. Here we, but, here, here we. I mean, I just I just randomly pulled one because there's you know two classic examples of coaches that are both yeah. on your list. Actually, despite the fact that he won back to back Super Bowls, Jimmy Johnson's pro record. They focused on the years in Dallas, but what about those years in Miami? And actually, oh, his years in Miami with the Dolphins were not exactly world-beating years. I mean, he had winning seasons, but they were not as good as his Dallas years. So uh, people might be surprised where I rank Jimmy Johnson when my book comes out three years from now. And like I said, Jim, we're going to talk about that, okay, three years from now, okay? I, I, totally, <laughs> I totally forgot the Miami crap. That's right. That's right. You see, we got. that's why... When I look at a career, you have to look at the totality of it, everything. You just can't ignore – you just can't pick the great years and ignore the bad ones. You've got to see it absolutely overall, every aspect of it, and, and you can't ignore it. You know, it has to be seen completely. Can we put Jimmy's hurricane stuff in there? Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, guess what? Jimmy Johnson's not in my top 50 in my college football book. He didn't make it. In fact, I talk about it in my methodology chapter. I use them as an example. Okay, for each of my four rating categories, Jimmy Johnson's career value was .27. His ASR thing is you know, is X. His BQ value was Y. His B5 value is Z. And he, and when I did the final evaluation, I think it was he was ranked in the 60s, some, in the 60s. And I, and I explain why. 
One, he coached at Oklahoma. His first coaching gig was not at University of Miami. It was Oklahoma State, and he had like two losing seasons there. That was one aspect of it. Uh, secondly, those two national championships they lost out on when Penn State beat him in the 87 Fiesta Bowl, that cost him points. And also, when he lost the Catholics versus Convicts game against Notre Dame, remember Miami was number one, knocked him off the number one spot, and it cost him a national championship. And I said, if he had won those two national championships, guess what? Then he would have cracked the top 50 ranks, and he would have been featured in my book. But it didn't happen. So there you go. Yeah. I, I'm sitting, now I've, I've brought up the, you know, the bio on him, and I'm sitting here looking at it going, man, that's, yeah. that's not what I wanted to see. Yeah, but that's the way it is, man. You know, it, yeah, uh, just uh, missed opportunities, man. You know, just uh, and again, I had to look at the totality of his career, and that's uh, that's what it came up. You know, that, that that's the way it is. There's a lot of famous names who didn't make the top fifty, like Amos Alonzo Stagg, Frank Broyles, John Heisman, for whom the Heisman Trophy is named after. He didn't make it. Uh, there's a bunch of notable guys who did, who did not pass muster because you know, Duffy Doherty at Michigan State didn't make it uh, simply because John Robinson at USC didn't make it then because there were some lean periods that really played against him and it harmed him in the eyes of my rating system. Hayden Fry, who just died recently at Iowa, I had him ranked 128th of all time. You know, even despite, you know, despite his great work at Iowa. I mean, he inspired Bob Stoops to become a, a coach in his own right there. I remember when I interviewed Bob Stoops, he talked about what an influence Hayden Fry was. You mentioned John Heisman. He grew up not too far from where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The so. thing is, when he left Georgia Tech, his years after that kind of dragged him down a little bit. I mean... It was very close for that top 50 spot. He was in a dead tie with Dana X Bible for that 50th spot. But I, using the preponderance protocol, Bible topped Heisman in three of the four categories, and that's why Dana X Bible is ranked 50th and John Heisman is ranked 51st. Does he get any credit for coaching baseball or basketball? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> just strictly what they, you know, just strictly what they did in football. Again, you know, just. Oh wait, now I point. Uh, I'm, now I'm scrolling down the rest of the record here, and that ba that basketball record is not going to help with many. No. Yeah, <laughs> don't laugh. I will do basketball. I mean, I, I still want to do a pro basketball book. I want to do a college hoops book. I figure ten years from now, I want to do something. The fifty greatest college basketball coaches of all time. I mean, I've got a plan where my next book's pro football. That's 2022, and then I want to follow it up with. The 50 greatest uh, base major league baseball managers. I want that to come out in 2026, and then the one after that will either be my pro basketball book or my college basketball book. So I've got a lot of. As long as I'm still breathing, I'm still going to be writing my books there. So, you know, Jim, we'll be doing a lot in the in the decade to come. We'll be I'll be on your show again and again talking about my next releases. Okay, Jim. <laughs> hey, I, I'm serious, man. I enjoy I enjoy the sports. I don't like I said. I normally don't get there. I think I've well been doing this show for oh eight and a half years i uh talked sports for the first time in well, in january i had a uh, yeah. NASCAR, nascar truck series driver jesse awuji on so that was kind of oh. a cool thing yeah i mean the opportunity knocked and i said well a guy at that level i just can't say no to and uh, so i took him and then we're talking sports tonight so kind of there's people out there who don't like when i talk politics and so how i'm talking sports and you know whatever. yeah yeah balance it out yeah, a little bit. I, 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 I'm very grateful, Jim, for you having me on. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, I mean, actually, this, like I said before, you know, this is a great Christmas gift, and I'm most grateful, Jim, really, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Well, thank you, because like I said, I was looking for something. It, it's it's a weird time of year, right? Because most of my contemporaries are off tonight, right? It's Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve next week. But I like being here because there's some people out there who really look forward to this. I know I do. And, you know... Maybe aren't having the greatest time with their family, so maybe they need to get out and you know something out and take their mind off it. So that's why I'm here. And then, yeah, this time of year it's a weird time of year, and I don't necessarily want to be talking you know politics or demons, yeah. or, you know, any of these weird things. So what's a great kind of topic? Yeah. Well, sports. So it that's works right. well. And, yeah. Besides, this is the 150th anniversary of the very first college football game, which was actually a month ago in early November when Rutgers played Princeton. So 
that's the reason why I put this book out. You know, it was to coincide with that 150th anniversary there. And it's just, it's. I mean, it was just a simple little game. You know, and Rutgers won six to four. And the game that they played bears very little resemblance to the way the game of football play, is played now. It was more like a kicking game, more like soccer. And yet, from that little game, you have this mega billion dollar industry that is coast to coast broadcast around the world. You know, and just and it just it's and and you have college football programs. They have bureaucracies that are more labyrinthine than the White House when you look at it. <laughs> well, well, well. I, 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 I mean, mean I, I, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, I, I'm trying to contact these coaches. You have to navigate through the websites. You know, who do you talk to? And you ought to see the flow charts, the directories there. I mean, they're so Byzantine. It, it's just mind-boggling, you know, the bureaucracies that they create, you know, for a program like Alabama, Washington, uh, USC, uh, Clemson, you know, Texas, stuff like that. It's just it's mind-boggling how vast you know, uh, an empire, you know, college football, you know, college football programs are at certain universities, the most elite universities. It's just, it's amazing. So That's maybe, why the tuitions are so high when you think <laughs> about it, because you've got to pay for all those people. Seriously. So maybe I don't want to ask you this on the air. Maybe I'll ask you here in a few minutes when we get done with the on-air portion. But I'll save that for that, because that'll be an interesting one, just between me and you. Because I don't, sometimes there's good stuff that, you know, is good stuff, and then there's some stuff that's good stuff but probably doesn't need to be a public record. We'll, we'll call it that. Okay. Sound like a plan? Can I ask you a yeah. Can I ask you a question, Jim? Remember, I think I gave you, you know, uh, the file, the manuscript, right? I want to ask you this: uh, but when you saw the rankings where certain coaches ranked, which one surprised you the most? Oh, you would ask. Um, I was more. Come to mind? No, I was going to say, it kind of, you know, because I, it's hard to compare errors because I, you know, I'm a younger guy, so some of these names, like Bear Bryant, right? I know the stadium down in Alabama is named after him, right? But I don't necessarily know his record and, you know, all his statistics off the top of my head. So it was more of a learning experience trying to, like I said, because, you know, I, okay, I'll be, like, I was a Penn State fan, right? So I, my, my legend yeah. was present. No, you know, because every time you turn around, you know, you'd stand there beside someone and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember 77 when, you know, he did that same fake punt. You remember yeah. the fake punt from you know, so you're standing, you know, you're listening to these stories. Yeah, but some of these yeah. universities, you know, they turn over coaches like, well, you know, I'm turning over paper here, you know, like the names just kind of leak through, and that was, I yeah. guess that's that's the hard part for me, just you know, and then you see those names, you go, oh yeah, I do remember hearing that name, but I didn't realize this, that, and the other, so I didn't really answer well, your question, I, but yeah, I, 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 there's a rhetorical point. I I think the problem uh, I don't want to I don't I, I, I'm not it's not a knock on you Jim but I think overall I think sports journalism has to have a better grasp of sports history I mean I get this impression sometimes if there's no videotape on it therefore the subject <laughs> really can't be important because like the other night the ESPN's been doing to commemorate the 150th anniversary of college football they've been doing this series you know the was at ESPN 30 for 30s where they talked about various aspects of college football history. And they were talking about great what-if scenarios. And actually, it was a great concept, but that actually was very poorly judged. And they had a panel of people there, and I could tell that some of them really had no grasp of the overall history. They really had no concept like who Hurry Up Yost was or Glenn Pop Warner or people like that, and what they really contributed to the game, or even Walter Camp, for that matter, about, you know, the early years where there was no such thing. There, Like from 1869 to 1906, forward passing was not allowed. It was forbidden. It was strictly a running game. And to get a first down, you needed three tries to get only five yards to get a first down, okay? It's only after 1906 that, you know, forward passing was legalized, and you also had to get ten yards and four downs and all of that. And even then, forward passing, there was like, like in the old, uh, like before 1939, if you threw an incomplete pass in the end zone, it was ruled a touchback. Okay, think about that for a moment. I think they should bring that back. By the way, that'd be much better. I mean, I mean, seriously. I mean, if you tried to throw a touchdown pass and it went incomplete, it was an automatic touchback and went to the other team. Can you imagine that? 
That'd be, I'm not going to say phenomenal. We need that back. Yeah, and also, when you threw a forward pass, the guy throwing the ball had to be at least five yards behind the line of scrimmage for it to be legal. If he was not within five yards, it was an illegal pass. Think about that for a moment. He, the quarterback had to be five yards behind the line of scrimmage before he could throw a ball. And even back in the old days, the balls were very plump. It was more conducive for running and kicking. That's why you always heard about drop kicking and all of that, because it was more plump. It's only when the game of football became more streamlined that it became easier to throw a pass and all of that, and drop kicking was phased out because the slimmer ball, it was more difficult to drop kick it. That's why you don't see drop kicking today and all of that. You know, more, you know, the emphasis was on place kicking and all that. And you would see these weird concepts like hurry up, Yost created the punt and the pass and the prayer notion of defense. In other words, you always use your kicking team for field position. If you got the ball inside your own 20-yard line, you saw automatically punt it on first down. I mean, think about that. You just punt it on first down, and you want to make sure you pin the team, uh, the opposing team deep in their territory, force the turnover, Get the quick score that way. I mean, that was that's how football was, and that's how influential Yost was. Because generations of coaches, all the way up to Darrell Royal, used that concept. You know, where I'd rather let the, the opposing team have the ball, use my defense to force the turnover, and then get the quick score and all of that. I mean, it was just that was standard defensive strategy. Actually, last Super Bowl that was played was a very close approximation of what college football was like a hundred years ago. You saw all that, that that battle of the defenses between the Rams and the Patriots and all those punting, all the punts there. That's the way college and pro football was played a century ago. Seriously, Jim. Really. Well, obviously, you know, you, you ask your question, and I, we, we briefly referenced John Heisman, right? Yes. Besides, besides the trophy, I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that he, like I said, grew up, what is it, 25 miles north of here. So, you yeah. know, there's the big... There's a uh, historic marker and all this other stuff about him. Yeah, I would, I would. I mean, that's the reason I know him because he's kind of semi-local, right? I yeah, mean, we're talking about a guy who from the turn of the last century. Yes, left John no, no video, no video. Well, limited video. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, John Heisman uh, bounced around a bit in the early 19th century, uh, late 1890s. He was like, I think, it was like Auburn and a couple other places, Oberlin, Auburn, Auburn, and all of that. And then he settled at Georgia Tech. His greatest work was at Georgia Tech. He put Georgia Tech on the college football map. He created powerhouses there. And, and especially in the mid-1910s, he had three straight seasons where I think it was like a 32 or 33-game winning streak or something like that. And they were just, they didn't, they did not lose a game. They won like two or three national championships, not by the modern definition. There was no AP poll back then, but in the eyes of various retroactive organizations like the Helms Foundation, the Holgate System, uh, the National Championship Foundation, or uh, the Billingsley Report, they were recognized as, if there had been a poll back then, they, they were the best team in college football. And he got this great work out of these Georgia Tech teams using a thing called the jump shift which today would be illegal because, you know, the rule is when you shift, you have to come to a full, complete one-second stop before the ball is snapped. Well, with his jump shift, they would line up in this weird, freaky thing. They only have one guy, and they would all line up behind him, and at the last second, they would shift into place. Just before the ball was snapped, they would split in this thing, and the ball would be snapped, and they would catch the defense off balance, and they would get great yardage out of that. And it was because of that that they created the rule after you shift, you must come to a full and complete one-second stop. That's the reason why you have that rule today, is because of that. And in fact, Rocky did the same thing with his Notre Dame box shift, you know, that last-second shift maneuver to catch the defenses off balance. That was common back then, you know, uh, this type of shift. And the University of Minnesota under Henry L. Williams had the same thing, a very unique, uh, an abrupt shift that would try to outflank uh, defenses and all that. And Heisman had that. And it just, it worked wonders. And in fact, uh, what was it, 1970, 1918, they took on Pitt University. They, who too, had a perfect unbeaten streak. And it was a battle of two great dynasties taking each other on. And the Pitt annihilated Georgia Tech 32 to nothing. And that was literally the last gasp for Heisman. A couple of years later, he left Georgia Tech and then he kind of bounced around. He coached at Penn. He coached at Rice and uh, maybe some other place. And then, 
he he left coaching completely and went into the you know at New York Athletic Club and and uh, that's where the Heisman Trophy was established. So Matthew, I, hey, we got twenty five seconds left. So first, seriously, from thank you for reaching out because I hey never know and I'm glad you did. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, and God bless you. And Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas. Hang out with me for about another. I got like I said, I have one more off the record question. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. It's been a great... I've enjoyed myself. I know there's probably some people out there who are... um, Well, tune in next week. It'll be different. That's all I can say if you didn't like the sports. (laughs) A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.